Are you tired of high-grade, professionally manufactured weed? Is all that genetically modified cannabis getting to your system? Well, get the sticks and stems and mediocre high you miss at Stank Dispensary. Stank weed is trash. It's so weak you can blow the smoke right in your newborn baby's face. You can even feed it right to your dog. Don't worry about having to open those bougie-ass pre-roll containers. Stank is that old-school weed from the 90s you know and love. It comes in a plastic Ziploc baggie. I'm high right now, doing this advertisement. But here's the secret. I smoke stank, and it ain't done shit. Come visit Stank Dispensary today. And there they go. Welcome back to the show. High Power is Sunday How you feel? I'm hoping it's not too hot. It's been hot as hell in L.A., so I'm praying for everybody uh, in this heat, this global warming, whatever you want to call it. Uh, But today we got a great, great episode. I hope you guys are hungry to hear about how to get into real estate. That's right, man. We're trying to bring y'all all all type of guests. You know what I'm saying? Comedy folks, actors, actors creators but also we bring y'all a variety of of just realness so we trying to bring y'all somebody who is an expert in the real estate game she's also had an amazing life we talked to her about just her uh, upbringing and how she even just fell into producing some of the most monumental black films that you can even imagine uh we talked to helena perez that's right if you live in the L.A. area, she is a black Cuban woman, uh, uh, Afro-Latina woman who is uh, really just a, a genuine sweet person. I happened to meet her through circumstance, happenstance, and I didn't even know she worked on some of these brilliant movies. Love Jones, Friday, like she brought y'all house party. She's very, very modest about being on our show, but also we... we tended to focus a little bit more on the real estate conversation as she is so passionate about bringing real estate knowledge to people of color and young folks. So this is for y'all. Keep up with with her. She does a YouTube series where she talks about real estate and teaching folks things. So please make sure to check her out on YouTube. Just search Helena E. Perez. Uh, So we have our little intro with me and Ralph coming up and then the brilliant interview, some of the most amazing stories we've heard. Um, here on the show. Also, High Power, the film, the short film, has been doing great in the festival circuit. We got some more dates coming out all over the world, all over the country. So if you happen to be uh, in the Detroit area, September 23rd, we're going to be screening High Power, the short film, as part of the Detroit Black Film Festival. Uh, Also, October 2nd, we're screening the film as a part of the Tallgrass Film Festival in Wichita, Kansas. So holla at us if you're in those areas. We got more dates coming out. You can keep up with all of that stuff at highpowerfilm.com. And and, and uh, we really appreciate your support. So without further ado, let's get into it. Welcome to High Power. <laughs> She said house party and then Love Jones. And then she said something else, too. Uh-huh. Friday? 
Friday. <laughs> yeah, she said Friday. Yo, know. and then you wanted to talk about real estate, so I was like, all right, we can't talk about because we could talk all day about <laughs> all know. those movies, like specifically Friday, specifically. But she did the business side, so it's not like, right, right, yeah. right. But it's that's the that's the she did the power moves to make it approve, like approve that you know, like to get it. I mean, she basically she's modest, but she gave us. It was like she was the liaison between House Party being an indie movie to it being a studio distributed classic. Mm-hmm. She was like one of the main impotent like that. Uh, it's crazy because it's like she's like, yeah, it takes a team and it does take a team. Yeah, it yeah. does take a team. She's being modest. Yeah. But I'm just like, but for it to get into the masses, you know what I mean? For it to be made, like, you gotta do, someone has to do that move. That's why I was like, she's a black godmother, like, you know what I mean? Because it's yeah. like, you just named three movies that people still watch to this day. Bro. I mean, that was all 90s classics. Yeah, like when black films were black films. Like, films. Film, cinematic With films. an M. Yeah. <laughs> it is a film. <laughs> Très important. Yeah, I don't, uh, I mean, even now, like, black movies are kind of divided a little bit. I feel like it's, like, Moonlight. Some people liked it. Some people didn't see it. Uh, you know, yeah. what's, what else? What's the last unifying black film experience that you think? Yeah. Film? Like, that was really, like, niggas saw that shit. Everybody was like, no, that's, that's a class. That's a class. Was it Get Out? Get Out. Get Out be a black. I don't think Get Out was a black film because it mostly had a white cast. Oh, you think so? I mean, well, it was yeah, a, yeah, it I was a black. Right. It was it was a black idea. Black idea, but it was like a black. When I think black film, I'm like the cast. Okay, the cast. Like Best Man Holiday, the Best Man and Best Man Holidays to me are like mm-hmm. black film. Like where it was just like enjoyable, but real people. Yeah. Like, and then the second one just made me cry. I didn't think I was gonna cry. So I was like, oh, shit. Okay. Yeah, got real in that second one. Yeah, the second one got real. Black film. That's a good question. What's a black film. And that's kind of messed up because there's the photograph, but nobody really watched that. That movie wasn't special because our guest said nothing is special. It's been done before. I feel like that. Uh... We could have just watched Love Jones. <laughs> <laughs> what about, I mean, not a lot of people saw it, but uh, if Bill Street could talk? Ooh. Regina King. I haven't seen it. Oh, see, see. Have you seen it? I have. It's good. It's very good. Okay. I would say, um, obviously, I mean, obviously, we knew this for a long time. Give Regina King her flowers. Yes, yes, yes. But uh, but yeah, I mean, it was based off a book. I mean, the book. Oh yeah, black. James Baldwin book. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It was a very good. I mean, it was a very black story. Black director. Um, what's that? I'm thinking of the uh, Sylvie movie on Amazon. Sylvie. Uh, see, not a lot of people see that. Uh-huh. See, that's the thing, though, with these black classics. A bunch of people used to watch it. Everybody used to talk about it. You know what I mean? Right. Like, oh, yo. And everyone has the famous lines like, damn, like Friday's a classic black film. Like, yeah. you know, because everyone knows the lines. Like, um, Kevin Hart's first laugh at my pain. All right, all right, all right. Everyone was doing that. That's very that's true. That's a... Okay, I'm trying to see who this was directed. I mean, Summer by. of Soul to give them 
give quest yeah that was good that was good that was actually a great a doc that's a good doc for every black person artist to watch i think that's a that's you know what that's absolutely a great film yeah that was a great film i i I have um oh damn not enough people saw that what one night in miami that was great. That was I watched really that twice. Good. I watched that twice. I would I need to watch it again. I watched that twice. I watched that with Sylvie's Love. They both were on Amazon. I'm I trying know. to find Sylvie. Sylvie's Love is with uh, Tessa Toms, uh, Thompson. Uh-huh. Um oh, I love her. Yeah, so she it's like based in like 1960. You know who's in there that you would know? He's a comedian. Uh-huh. Bell. Tone Bell's in it? Tone Bell. He always plays like a music. You know, Tone Bell always plays like a classic, like he's playing like an old classic musician, jazz musician. Uh It's a real good movie. Like, Sylvie's Love is a real good, I mean, for me, it was really good. I watched it twice. Like, I don't watch movies twice unless it's like really good and I'm like, I got to do this again. Sylvie's Love is a black film that I would recommend people watch. Okay. Yeah, it's a... How do you spell Sylvie? um, It is S. Y L V I E. Okay, I found it. Yeah. S Y L. Really good. Black rope. Yeah, it's on Amazon. Oh, it's on Amazon. Yeah, really good black film romance timepiece that not a lot of people are talking about that film. But it's very simple, but very, very good. And you're rooting for both characters and the side characters on the side have their little stories, but it's not as major. Uh-huh. You know, I kind of like those. So that's a movie. That's the last black film. I'm like, ah, oh, I like that. I also did like One Night in Miami. That was a really good black. Yeah. Oh, shit. What's up? Fucking Netflix Western. It was a Western. Oh, yeah. I didn't see. I didn't watch it yet. Oh, Harder They Fall. Harder They Fall. Hey, oh, who? my God. You liked it? Oh, my God. Yes. Who uh, Who made that? <laughs> Um, how did they fall? I know it was produced by Jay Z. Oh shit! Yeah, Jay Z produced it. He was an executive producer. How did they fall? Oh my god! Like Lakeith, everybody. Lakeith is gangster in that movie. Like really gangster in that movie. Yeah. Still being, you know, still being himself. Like you know, why they casted him, but also really fucking good. Like yeah. Okay, so he's a writer director. Jameis. Yeah. Samuel. Yeah, Jameis. He's like an English dude. Okay. And the music behind it, the... I mean, the story... I wa- Again, I watched that maybe like twice, once on mute. Yeah. So three times. So just wow. at Thanksgiving dinner, I just put it in the background. I'm like, oh, this is still good to watch. Like, just... It's cinematic, too. Very yeah. cinematic. Very... That's a very... I don't know if you want to... Just put it in the box of black film because we don't have that many films to just say this is a regular American film. But right. that's a black film. And The Last Black Man in San Francisco. Oh. Have you seen that? I haven't seen that yet. Wow. I'm like, now those black films are like popping in my head. Yeah. That one's a very absurdist but also very good movie. Like, Yeah. Yeah. And I like that black films can like do that now you know like they don't have to be the trope drama they can yeah. be weird you know like in a way like uh what's that guy's name that always does like weird movies with the same cast uh, who uh wes anderson there you go wes anderson yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. which i love wes anderson movies but i wish there was like black more black wes anderson movies right i don't know what the single last film was that every like and maybe this is maybe that era is over like unanimously, generations—your mom, your uncle, 
the kids, everybody saw this movie and they were like, this shit is a classic. I don't know. Mm. And maybe that's over. Maybe the internet, maybe niche markets, like, be you know, everybody being fans of all these different styles now. I don't know. Maybe like, and obviously, you know, there's the pandemic of it all, but I don't know if there's a movie that was made by a black cast, black director, black producers. I mean, even with television, it's like the Carmichael show. I think the Carmichael show, to be honest, even though not everybody saw it, it still had such a generational draw Mm -hmm. where everybody who knew about it, at least when it was on, was watching it. You had... David Allen Greer representing some of the old head ways of thinking. Mm-hmm. You had, you know, Gerard Carmichael and his girlfriend's character, Amber Stevens West. Yeah. I can't think of what else is kind of like a conversation piece between the black family in a way that like a like a Love Jones, like a Friday. I don't know what that is now. Who does that? I mean, is it just Tyler Perry stuff? Uh, not even because uh, the people... There's certain people that don't watch Tyler Perry. That's true. Like, um, I would say the last, but it's not even black producers. It was like Disney marketing. It was like Black Panther. Like the kids oh, were saying. right, right, right. The aunties were saying, the uncles of Wakanda forever. Everywhere Wakanda forever. Yeah. Like everybody was saying that. Damn, I forgot about this show. Everybody was. What, Carmichael show? Yeah, I'm just looking at the cast now on IMDb. I'm like, oh, yeah, that is where like Lil Rel came back. Yeah. Tiffany that... Haddish. Yeah, I mean, that's. I mean, Whatever. it's crazy how that show would have to change now. What you mean? Because of Carmichael. Oh, because he came out? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's funny how he had to play like a lie on TV almost. Like the whole time, do you right? Think, uh, do you think it was a lie? I'm not saying Gerard should have came out when the show came out because he was obviously dealing with yeah. himself and identity. So I'm not saying he's a... It's, I'm just saying, like, he. I wonder what his thinking is when looking back at that show. He's like, man, I wish I was braver. Maybe I would have had. What's crazy, bro, now that I look back and I'm like, I've always been a, a Gerard Carmichael f- fan. Mm-hmm. Um, Now when you look back and you think like, oh, yeah, he was always hanging out with Tyler, the creator. And like. I've seen those two sitting out serve these guys. Yeah. In a restaurant, like, yeah. did I tell you that? No, I didn't know that. I worked in West Hollywood, and okay. that's a place called the Henry's, and it was, like, both these guys, like, sitting across, the, like, having a lunch date, like, right. you know what I mean? And I'm freaking out, man, because I'm, like, because <laughs> I'm black in Hollywood, but there's, like, I work with servers that don't, like, Tyler's kind of niche in a yeah, way. they're both. They're both niche. Yeah. And I'm, like, yelling in the back, like, yo, there's royalty out there, man. There's royalty. <laughs> like, to, like I'm telling the chefs, like, yo, make sure this shit is perfect. It's Gerard Carmichael. And everyone's like, who? <laughs> yeah. Who? I was like, man. And then I go to the table. I kept going back, like, serving. I'm like, no one go to that table but me. And then Tyler Creator's like, thank you, Sugar Boo Boo. Like, <laughs> and I was like, he called me Sugar Boo Boo. <laughs> like, you know? <laughs> but, yeah. And And to me, it's like... Watching Gerard's new special, I had to check myself mm. watching it because I'm just like, okay, I'm obviously I've grew up in in arts programs and I've been around gay kids my whole life. And like, you know, it's always been a part of being in the arts and being in theater and, you know, doing comedy. Everybody's there. Mm. But I had to check myself and just kind of be like, oh, it's not that Gerard's gay now. It's just it's 
it's he's always been Gerard. Mm-hmm. Like to me, and I was just I had to kind of check my brain and just being like, oh, I don't want to switch up how I feel about him or his comedy or anything he's ever done. I think it was just the timing of like, maybe that is what it is. Like, and uh, that was it was really funny in the special where he's talking about how his his dad desperately wants him to be by, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> just so he can. <laughs> Somehow. That special was great, man. I watched that twice. Yeah, I got to watch it again, too. Yeah, I watched it twice. I was like, okay. The black vulnerability that he exposed that everyone's probably going to be talking about for a while made the special special. Right. Like the the silences, the uh, the uncertainty. Him sitting. Yeah. The whole time. It was like it was watching and listening like you were listening. Like, yeah. because he was so silent and the laughs weren't so every five seconds. It mm-hmm. was just like, holy shit. Wait, holy. This man's really doing what I call, like, journal exposing. Like, mm-hmm. you're just exposing everything in your journal. Mm-hmm. Like, you're having a therapy session yeah. with an audience. Which is, a, this is, I kind of like. <laughs> bro, when the crowd just started weighing in, like. Like, how, bro, what about this? Yeah, about yeah, yeah, this? yeah. Yeah, yeah. I thought that was like, Wow. For what the Carmichael show was, I'm looking at, what is this? Uh, it was out 2015 to 2017. Mm. I think that was the perfect time period. I mean, Trump was in office. I mean, it was the perfect time period for him to do that show mm-hmm. the way he did it. Yes. And I think now that that he's kind of, um, you know, taking this shift in his career... It's like, I think he did it. I don't feel like he lied to us. I think he was just waiting, waiting to be ready to deal with that himself. Like mm-hmm, the, mm-hmm, the I joke agree. where he's talking about, like <laughs> he said, "I'll be in the shower, y'all." Just be like, "Damn, I really am gay. Like, <laughs> I'm really gay, bro. Wow. Like it's a shock to myself." Yeah. Like yeah. He was just waiting for himself to process it. It, it came out beautifully. I mean, I've never seen anyone like that came out publicly that great. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, it was just like, even the way he was, what he was wearing, like gold chains with the red. Like, you might think it's a regular outfit, but that's a classic, yeah. like, 70s Yeah, yeah. It was comic. a little Richard Pryor homage yeah, in a way. Yeah, Made me almost question my fucking purpose on stage. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, but I, I, I'm, I'm different from Gerard, but it was just like, you better get on stage with a purpose. You know what I mean? Oh, just like, yeah, man. Just, don't go up there with the bullshit. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, I mean, everyone has different bullshit, what they classify, but don't go up there just wasting time. Like, have right. some value to say. Have some, man, it was, it was just a lesson. Have some, have something. Have some context, some thick, yeah. thick grits where people could be like, hey, I, I want to stick with this guy, see if he makes it. You right, know? right, yeah. right. Okay, man, we have been uh, leading y'all in this beautiful direction of, man, a really classic conversation that we had today with Helena Perez. If y'all don't know, one of the dopest real estate agents in uh, Southern California. Um, She just gonna give y'all some game today. And she's one of the best in Los Angeles. She says out of her own mouth, and I believe it because I've met her, she's obsessed with helping you win at real estate. You can Google her. Read her reviews if you really want to get a little bit of um, her helping you make it in the real estate game in L.A. Uh, Just Google Helena E. Perez. That's H-E-L-E-N-A. 
Um, e is her middle initial, and then Perez, P-E-R-E-Z. You could also YouTube that name as well. She is releasing on YouTube right now 101 questions on how to buy a home. So follow her on Instagram at Helena E. Perez, and we're going to talk to her right after this commercial break. You ever just wake up and go to your closet and you're like, I don't know what I'm going to wear today, but I want to feel like myself. Like, I want to feel dope. I want to feel super charged. Like, I'm a superhero putting on my uniform. You know where you need to go? Alert Clothing Brand. These guys are a young fashion company doing amazingly positive things. I mean, they have premium materials. They have t-shirts, hats, hoodies, and, and all original designs with these creative sayings that just let you know that you are coming into your power as a human being. They, they try to really encourage everybody who's a part of their movement to enlighten themselves and stay vigilant on a journey of finding the best you. You know what I mean? You you, you want to feel like you you on your purpose, like you you confident, like you feeling self awareness and self development. So I need you to go ahead and get your fashion game up. Go to alert.com. That's a l l i r t dot com, and you can also keep up with them at alert brand on Instagram. And when you get to that website, I need you to do one thing for me. You got a discount code only from us at High Power Podcast. Go ahead and type in Power pod on the checkout all right that's your code go ahead and type in power pod for an exclusive discount only from high power listeners so go ahead and get into the best self that you possibly can with alert clothing brand all right they are here to remind you that you are a god having a human experience alert.com helena Welcome, welcome to the show. Oh my goodness. I mean, you've had an insanely interesting life. And I think you lived this whole other career before real estate. So yeah, I guess I just want to start even before there. Like where, you're not, are you from LA? Did you even start here? Where are you from? I'm from New York. I'm from New York City. I was born in Brooklyn and raised in the Bronx. Ooh. And I went to music and art and NYU. Where you studied, what was it? I went to film school. Film I went school. to film okay. school at NYU. But you grew up, okay, you grew up in the Bronx. Yes. Fordham Road. Whoa, whoa. So it was a lot, was a lot of pressure on you to go to school? Or like oh, you just my always God, knew yeah. you? Well, yeah. we're Cuban. So, you know, first generation American. Mm-hmm. Yeah, enormous pressure to do well, to go to school. You know, it's just the immigrant thing, especially yeah. Caribbean. And so that led you. What what made film the next kind of uh, made? Did it make it just made well, sense it, for you? Be, well, it it's called the movie business, and I've always had a really great mind for business. I've been really fortunate in that. I'm not intimidated by math or by you know money or by things that other people may like artists normally would feel intimidated by. So I was like, oh well, it has a business. So maybe like I'll get in the film business. I made some films, but I studied more producing. It was more what I wanted to do. Okay, so you finish film school. What was the transition to L.A.? Actually, it was New York first. So mm-hmm. I worked in New York. Uh, New York is largely like books and theater. So 
it's, you know, the book business. So you read a lot of books and you recommend books for movies. Oh. And you see plays and you recommend them for movies and mm-hmm. you read scripts. I worked yeah. at Columbia. Well, it was Columbia at the time. It's Sony now, but it was Columbia. And um, I worked for Scott Rudin. He's a fairly yeah. big producer. And I was, you know, just entry level. You just read all the books, you know, even the books that they know aren't really that good. Mm-hmm. But they just want to be sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So they like so, give it to the kid. Right, give it to the kid. Read it over the weekend. And you know, the kid hones their their skills. Yeah. Analyzing stories and writing about them. So. So you would kind of do, I guess, what we call like coverage. Yes, exactly. How many books would you say you read? Oh wow, I don't even know because I still read a lot of books. Uh, that's a lot of books. But I, I would say on the weekends I would read two books and three scripts. And write report like fully, report. fully. Yeah, unless they the were book. really dreadful. <laughs> she has that Bronx mentality. They're like, I'm not gonna open up. I don't know who you are. <laughs> no, it's less that. It's more of you know, it. It's it's good to be present. You know, hmm. I do recognize that I have had a very interesting life and blessed. Um, and I do realize that a lot of people really like behind the scenes of entertainment, but like I'm. I live in the present, you know, and my my present is completely different from that. So no, that that was the perfect. <laughs> that's perfect. I, I respect that. She's she's New York, bro. She's just it's a whole swag. It's a whole. <laughs> it's an entire I've, vibe. Did, was uh, was there anything that was super clear in getting you to the West Coast in that regard? Oh or was it like- no, I just uh, no. Actually, the way I got to the West Coast was like a complete freak accident where I uh, well, someone said to me, "You should probably interview for this job in L.A." and I was like, "L.A. I'm not going to L.A. <laughs> I like New York. I'm a New Yorker through and through, right?" So I came to L.A. <laughs> and I. <laughs> had the interview and the interview went kind of like south really fast no yeah because i'm from new york and so i may have said a thing or two that was provocative and i was like cool that's over <laughs> i get to go oh. back to new york <laughs> and then when i got to new york i got a call that was like oh this person really liked you because you just said like whatever came to your mind and they really want somebody like that so you got the job Oh, yeah. snap. That's great. Just being yourself got the job. But so, okay, where, how the hell did you get involved in Friday? I mean, set it off. Like, what was another thing I read? What was it? Uh, Love Jones. Love Jones. You I mean, you want a freaking Peabody at BET, right? <clears throat> That's a long story. But um, I have always been really business-minded, and I had an internship at Neoline Cinema, which at the time only made, like, Friday, I mean, I'm sorry, only made um, Freddy movies, like the horror movie. Mm-hmm. But they acquired a lot of movies. So they, they, that guy that owned that company, he was pretty amazing. He pioneered bringing foreign films to the U.S. Like, we now take that for granted that, you know, you can see films from France or films from Italy or films from Africa. There was a time when they really didn't have a distribution network in the United States. And he had gone to NYU. And what he had done is he had gone to Europe. He knew all these films from going to film school, went to Europe and made these contracts with these foreign distributors to bring these pictures to the United States. So he basically pioneered the international market for films here in the U.S., 
Wow. And then he was so wildly successful, some of his films, this particular French film, ended up winning, like, the foreign Oscar. Mm-hmm. And so he then parlayed that cash into producing low-budget movies because he was a filmmaker. That's what he wanted to do. He was a director. He went through the directing program at NYU. Yeah. He was a contemporary of Scorsese's and Oliver Stone's. And, you know, so he was like, hey, me too. So he started this company production unit. So I worked because I took French in college. Yeah. And I spoke Spanish. I got hired to work in their like international division as that same thing, like story editor, mm-hmm. kind of like call up these French companies and ask them to show their film to us for acquisition. Okay. And then I started understanding the model, the business model of how these films are made and how they're profitable. Mm -hmm. And this particular company had a great way of deciding whether they were going to make a film or not, which is they made a profit and loss statement based on the amount they could get for distribution domestically, the amount that they would have to spend on marketing, the amount that they could recoup from other ancillary things. At the time, it was home video Mm -hmm. and music and whatever. And then if all those numbers added up to a profit at the number that you could actually produce the film at, then you would make the movie. And it didn't always work out, obviously, because, you know, yeah. film or, films are weird that way. Like, you can do all the profit loss statements you want. People don't show up. Like, too bad, you know. Um, <laughs> but what happened was, for the most part, they didn't lose a lot of money, especially when with the advent of home video and sort of all these other ancillary ways for people to watch movies outside of the movie theater. So I thought to myself, cool, let's make black movies like that, right? Mm-hmm. Let's take black people's stories make them for a small amount of money. There is a huge audience. Eventually, if we make them for the right amount of money, we might not get that much money in distribution theatrically, but it'll grow over time. And so that's how I found House Party. I met the director and um, his brother at the time. They were very active in the black film community, the Hudlands. They were already going to make that movie. They are already going to make the first House Party as an indie film. And so we went to the set and, like, talked to them and read the script and everything. And so when the film was pretty much finished, mm-hmm. we acquired it and we helped them launch it. So yeah. we took it to Sundance and then it kind of blew up at Sundance and won the audience prize. And so it created this, this new way of looking at that P&L model for a really inexpensive film mm-hmm. to kind of make popular populist black films wow that is insane you like i mean yeah hats off like absolutely like yo so did y'all hear that she just brought you house party well no, uh, I mean, no, no, no. So, so the thing about the thing about a movie in general <clears throat> but any sort of successful endeavor is that it takes like a lot of people mm-hmm. all doing their thing and then weirdly it takes a miracle of sort of a generational shift, mm-hmm. right? So, like, at that particular moment, everybody knew <clears throat> that black people made films. They made them all over the world, right? But, like, mm-hmm. no one thought about popular black films. So nobody was thinking, like, black people like myself would go to the movie and see, like, a John Hughes movie or, mm-hmm. you know, a, a teen comedy 
and have a sense of transference, right? Have a sense of like, even though it's Molly Ringwald and like all these goofy people, Emilio Estevez or whatever, it's like I'm I'm having all those same experiences, right? But nobody really thought, oh, well, what about if we make a movie like that where all the people are black? I mean, but, still but, but hundreds of thousands of people were thinking that. And this one particular writer director was like, I'm going to be the one who does it. Mm-hmm. You know, like Spike. Spike was like, I'm going to be the one who does it. And Reggie was like, I'm going to be the one who does it. Because I've been thinking this for 10 years now. Right. And it just happened that I met them. Mm-hmm. And then I was in a position to help them. Yeah. And then... It just made And sense. then hundreds of thousands of people who had already been thinking that their subconscious desire was mm-hmm. rewarded, right? Yeah. So, like, it takes, I can't, you know, a lot, a lot of, of people and a lot yeah. of luck and a lot of, like, yeah, the universe, the universe just, just aligning of... to do these kinds of things. Like, I'm, I'm impressed because it's, like, the little details that you did in your life actually ultimately made this movie happen. Like, you know, like, it's you learning the French. It's you going to NYU. It's you doing all these, like, little small details to make a bigger picture happen that you didn't even know was going to happen. So so it's funny because you said this whole thing about higher power and like trying to figure out what your what your mm-hmm. path is. It's yeah. it's all like that. Like it's mm-hmm. all like that. It's those little things that you do. There I mean any person who has accomplished anything will tell you that it's not them. Mm-hmm. It's all these little things that they did every day that became greater than the sum of their parts. Mm-hmm. And then it seemed from the outside like it was them, but it really wasn't. Like, they had no <laughs> idea. Like, I had no idea why, yeah. how it was happening. That's kind of how they say with, um, you know, with a lot of actors. It's like they're, there's roles that are just made for you. There's no way that you could have done anything else to prepare for them besides have lived the whatever years you've been on this earth. I don't think people think about that on a day-to-day basis, you know? Like, I don't know if people, like, I sometimes, I think when in my life, I have to kind of slow down and, like, breathe and look around and just, like, really pay attention, you know, and be like, oh, I'm supposed to be exactly right here. Even when something happens that we would consider, you know, by all quote unquote human standards, like a tragedy or, you know, so that was my answer to your question, which is being present. Mm -hmm. You cannot be anywhere but present because you'll miss that. You'll miss that that thing that happened while you're so busy trying to avoid it. You'll forget to pay attention to what that is. And that is. The process. You can't really. That's crazy. Yeah, it is. I was crazy. just thinking about that in the car ride over here. I it was is crazy. Just thinking about being focused on the process, as opposed to the results. Because we live in. Uh, I mean, and we're all guilty of it, just because of the way society is. But it's like we are a very results-driven society, where it's like, you know, you you think about booking the role, you think about booking the uh the job or you think about you know how many followers whatever is your goal or the money you're trying to save all these tangible things and it's like funny enough the people that fall into those things are usually the people who are just you know f- focused on like can hone in 
on that the, their craft or their practice, whatever is that activity, that 10,000 hours thing that a lot of people are working on, it's like, just get really into that and like really, really into it. I know, I also wanted to know if you have like a favorite project that you did work on that you were just, that it clicked like, aha, this is my purpose. Like, you know, do you have that? I would say Love Jones. Yeah, I would say Love Jones. Because I think of, like I had that, at that point in my career, I had already had some successes. I'd already made a bunch of movies and I'd already become more or less an executive. I was starting to have this weird feeling when I went to the movies. I had that moment where I was just like, that's it. I'm not doing this anymore. So I was like, I'm going to find a couple of filmmakers and we're going to try to make movies that we like for us. And that's it. Yeah. And there won't be any other like caveat of like, you know, well, you know, we have to do this or we have to do that. I mean, several things happened that brought me to that conclusion. But that was pretty much the other thing that brought me to that conclusion was there was a time in the 90s, late 80s, early 90s, when there were a lot of films about uh, young people finding themselves. Um, like Reality Bites, you know, movies that were really about finding your place in the world. But instead of the films that have come before them, which were about knowing your place and going after it, these films were more about looking at the world and thinking, there's no place there for me, right? Mm -hmm. And so the whole movie was really not about anything. It was just about a bunch of people talking. Yeah. And after, like, like one or two of those were done really, really well. But after about watching, like, the fifth or sixth one that was just about a bunch of people talking and feeling like it had no purpose, I was like, I want to make a movie like that about black people. <laughs> where it has absolutely no purpose other than us sitting around talking about our experience and fitting into the world or not, because I want to see that movie. So and that's Love Jones. That's, that's Love, Love Jones. Jones. Wow. Wow. Uh, the thing that's crazy about it is that what you were doing is like, it kind of revolutionized, like that's part of like the black film of the 90s when the last time black, I mean like black films in the 90s were like black films, I feel like. They're like classics, like, you can replay them over and over and over, and it doesn't lose the value. And and the more you grow up, the more you can understand. So thank you for doing that. I want to say Again, thank you. Again, I mean, for, I can't even take credit I, for it because it's I like so many people involved. You know, it's like we all were having the same desire. It's just the universe happened to bring us all together, and I happen to be the one with the job. Like you're a big playmaker. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. You're a playmaker in the game. Though. So, yeah. I'm just, uh, I'm happy to be in the room. Yo, I think me and you have hung out, you know, and talked about this a little bit, but I, I, I think it's such an interesting story, the transition that you were able to make from being so successful in the film and television industry, and then just what was bubbling, what was happening in your life that, because I don't, was it a conscious choice for you to kind of, turn towards Not real estate really. or was it no. like what was bubbling what was happening in your life no i mean again it's just it's like that being present thing right like i've always had that having grown up in new york city i was always really um compelled by real estate because i was really intrigued like i would walk down the street you know in manhattan and you just look up at these buildings and they're all like massive skyscrapers but you know that there is a person that owns that building. 
And you're like, who is that? Like, can you imagine? Like, you, because, you know, when I worked at Sony or whatever, or I worked at some other corporation or whatever, I would just go into this giant office building. And the giant office building would be in the 32nd floor. And there'd be like millions of people coming and going in the elevator, going up and down. And, and you're like, son, fuck, owns this place. And I was always intrigued by that. And I wanted to find out who that was and how that worked. All along the time that I was in the movie business, I was checking out real estate here in L.A. And just kind of, what does that mean? Like you were just on Well, because here websites. it seemed way easier to buy nicer property than you could in New York. At the time, it was way more segregated than it is now. Just the lines of demarcation and how that related to the price and how something that was relatively central uh, was undervalued based on who lived it. And I was like, there's an opportunity there. So wait, but you, you basically, can you give us like the, the play-by-play of your first purchase or your first, like, I don't, I'm trying to, because I think for a lot of us, like anybody who's, I'm sure my age or just, you know, people that are kind of approaching that time in their lives where they should be just thinking ahead, like, what was that process for you, that first building that you ended up investing it in well so i didn't know really anything again like i just keep repeating the same mistakes over and over again in my life (laughs) so i didn't really know anything about home ownership and Mm -hmm. but i like business right so i was like oh there's got to be a way to like figure out how you buy a house but i was like i don't have any money i don't know i can't buy a house right and so i would go to like home ownership seminars right like all those terrible ones that you see on tv like flip a house and all that right (laughs) and then um i would try to get as much information as i possibly could but to be frank i worked for a contractor i decided like to do the same thing that i did when i got my job at new line is to be an intern and learn how you take a house that's derelict and fix it and then sell it for more and but but the first one for you you like lived in it yes Exactly. And yeah. For how long was that process? Not like that long. Because, uh-huh. again, because, again, most people, I think, feel like that's a really hard thing to do is fix a house. And that's where the flippers get you because <laughs> uh-huh. it's not that hard and it doesn't take that long. Yeah. And all you really do have to do is, you know, you have to have the attitude that you can do it. And now we have YouTube. How cool is that? We didn't have yeah, YouTube right. back in the day. But I think that my point is this, and I think what you want me to tell you is, like, how how, do, how can someone else do it? And, like, really the only thing that you need to know is that someone has already done it before you, right? It's that same thing of me walking down the street in New York and looking up at the skyscraper. Somebody already did this. Clearly can't be that hard. So let me find out what the steps are. Because if they did it, I could do it too. Mm-hmm. So that's sort of... That's my process. I think a lot of, there's a lot of psychological, what I would say, issues, I think, with, you know, the way we're raised, you know, because I, and I'm still teaching myself this on a daily basis, but just like how to step into a room and believe that I'm, I am an owner. You know what I mean? Like now when I go into a store, like and I and like you were saying, you have those questions and you're like, oh, okay, somebody owns this place. Like 
I like to think about, and I'll I'll talk to a shop owner and be like, how did you get started? Or like, where do you order these materials from? Or like, how did you go about marketing this? Or like, and I think we still, and you know, it's obviously historical, systemic, but I think a lot of us, you know, people that weren't raised with parents that, you know, handed you privilege, I think, unfortunately, a lot of our parents hand us fear, which, to be completely honest, saves our lives. You know what I mean? It's like growing up with an understanding that, like, my, you know, my skin color or my background is, like, considered something to be aware of. I just got that today. Like, I went to an open house, and I left that open house feeling... um, condescended to and perhaps even dismissed and I was like wow it's like 2022 (laughs) and you know like it was weird and I was like I almost thought to myself like I should really email her that she might want to consider unconscious bias training (laughs) oh yeah man but yes no so I I agree with you and this is something I spend a lot of time thinking about like I spend I spend time thinking about it because while I agree that there is a culture and a system and a process, a very deliberate process of uh, keeping people of color feeling that sense of fear, you can also jettison that. It takes a lot of work and, and you really have to work. It's not yeah. easy. And you have to do it if you're actually going to attain anything um, and, and what I try to do, like, my whole, my whole thing in life is, like, don't think you're special. You're not special. The minute you think you're special, like, you've X yourself out of something that somebody already did before that could have helped you get to that next level. So it's a process of constantly being present, of remembering that you're not special, but understanding that, yes, Other people have been through this before. Other people have done it successfully. Find those people and have them uh, give you three steps forward on it so that you can actually go higher than they went. And that's how I feel about homeownership, right? So people talk about, you know, bias, which is true, in lending and in appraisal and in add-on, 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 right? And yet, you look around... And there are hundreds of thousands of black people who own homes who went through things far worse than anybody's going through them right now. So rather than focus on the things that we don't have or focus on the things you think you know about it, find out and then ask some people because you can always find someone who can help you. There is someone in everyone's family who bought a home and they can't wait to tell you about it. Trust me. (laughs) (laughs) You know, reach out. There's so many resources. Reach out to um, organizations that help first-time homebuyers or organizations that help lower-income people buy homes. Or Because people are desperate to help. Yeah. But if you think, like I did, that you already knew how to do it, then you could waste maybe five years thinking, well, I don't have enough money, or I don't have this, or I only want to live in this neighborhood, or I only want to do that. And I did. I wasted like five or six years doing all that. Yeah. Whereas, you know, as soon as I started working for the contractor, I realized how it really worked. Like I realized like you go to the house that's falling apart, you offer less than 
than they're asking for, then you go in and you fix it in like two days and then you move in. <laughs> of course, I'm oversimplifying. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was like, yo, you make it look no, easy. But it, no, but you know, it really, there's nothing magical about it. It's mm-hmm. wood and nails and, you know, it's, it's being able to see a property and know, oh, this is too much for me. Or seeing a property and going, oh, I could paint that and it would look like a brand new one. I don't have to buy the brand new one. It's, it's a, you know, and you get better at it over time. With what you're saying, I think for people that, you know, your average Joe uh, who may have some common misconceptions about getting started, if you could, you know, for everybody listening who's serious about this, what would be three steps that you would give somebody who's interested? Maybe maybe they don't know if they have the money yet, but they're working, you know, maybe they're working on their credit. Um, but they're just they're just in the very early stages of thinking about how they would get to to buying that first home. Okay. What would be the three steps? So this would? is what I do all day. I think that the three things are move forward move forward, move forward. Those are the three things. Start where you are, right? So the thing that you have to always do is understand that nothing is permanent. Good's not permanent. Bad's not permanent. So here's an anecdote. I was, uh, I'm always talking to people about buying a home and I was talking to my next door neighbor and uh, I was like, you know, I know this rent is really cheap, but, you know, you kind of live with your mom. And at some point, you know, you're going to want to get married and your girlfriend's going to be like, well, we're not going to live with your mom. And then, you know, you're going to have to make plans. And so he's like, well, you know, I think about buying a house, but I can't buy a house because, you know, I have a, a really bad credit. And I'm like, OK, tell me about that. And he goes, well, you know, I have I had a credit card and I didn't pay it and it kind of went to default. And I'm like, OK, cool. How much do you owe on it? And he was like, two hundred dollars. <laughs> And I was like, okay, how long ago was that? And he was like, when I was 17. And I'm like, how old are you now? And he's like, I'm 25. (sighs) And I was like, you didn't find out. Find out. Find out. So the rules are that after a certain amount of time, any derogatory credit has to come off your credit report. Because they don't throw you in prison for having debt in America, thank God, yet. (laughs) So after a certain number of years... You ask them to take it off your credit or it automatically falls off your credit. So if you have a derogatory mistake that you made when you were younger, inquire how much longer it's going to be on there and eventually write them a letter and ask them to take it off. (laughs) So that's one thing you can do. Monitor your credit. Know your numbers, right? Monitor your credit. Even if you have made mistakes, they're not forever. Find out how long they're going to be on there, and how you can improve them. Second thing, know what your credit score is, right? Understand what good credit is and what bad credit is and how to fix it. It's very easy to fix credit. Super easy to fix credit. I dedicated myself like last year. And it doesn't take that long, and the time is going to pass anyway. And start thinking about momentum, right? Because what Mm -hmm. was great for me was as soon as I saw that number going down a little bit, you know, the the amount that I owed going down a little bit, I got momentum. 
right? And then mm-hmm. I started putting away a little bit of money and I saw that growing and I got momentum. Yeah. So always keep checking in on your numbers. Make sure that you see if your credit score goes up one point or goes down one point. Know the numbers. Mm-hmm. Know how much you make. Mm-hmm. Know how much you have in debt. So the way you get a loan mm-hmm. is your debt to your income ratio. Yeah. For loans, people are generally looking for your housing costs to be 40% or less of what you make. Hmm. Uh, that's a lot, though. That's a lot. Yeah. But what's more important than where you live, right? I mean, right, right, right. So debt to income ratio. The other mistake that people make in not knowing their numbers is they think that they need 20% down. Mm-hmm. Nobody needs 20% down. Mm-hmm. You can put down as little as 3%. Wow. There is no income cap to an FHA loan. So mm-hmm. an FHA is not actually a loan. It's a guarantee on a loan. The United States government says if you want to buy a house but you don't have money to put down, as most people do not, mm-hmm. we will guarantee that loan for the bank. Mm. And what we will do is we will charge you a little bit of money every month to a little point extra to loan you that guarantee, right? So basically, if I if I wanted to buy a house for 20% down, I wouldn't have to pay an extra point. I would just have to pay my interest rate. But if I didn't have 20% down and I only had 3% down, then FHA would guarantee that to me. If the bank charges me 3%, I have to pay 4%. In interest. But 1% in interest is considerably less than 17% in down payment on a purchase price of, you know, a house in, in Los Angeles. As you pay your mortgage on time and as the value of your home increases, you can refinance to a normal loan. Because the equity increase in your house makes up for that 3 to 20%, right? Now you've got more skin in the game. You can go to a regular loan. Plus, you've already shown that you can pay your mortgage and that you're on the up and up. What motivated me more than anything was the fact that I knew other people had done it. I lived in an apartment in Koreatown. My landlady didn't speak English. Like, not a word. She owned, like, three apartment buildings. Yeah. So I was like, and every, you know, every year, I would get that, like, 3% rent increase. Mm -hmm. And I would be like, wait, what? Every year, like, 3%? It just kept adding up and adding up and adding up. And I was like, she can't even speak English. How does she know to charge me 3%? Like, (laughs) so I was like, clearly, it's not that complicated. Find out about loan programs. Those are the steps. It's not that There's hard. There's somebody in your family that did it. Somebody. Just ask them how they did it. It's like the simple, and they're dying to tell you, can I be honest? They're so into it. Because <laughs> once you buy a house, too, there's some weird thing happens to you. You become like your parents, and you become like those old people talking too much at a party. It's yeah, like yeah. that. <laughs> 
Well, you know, the, the hedges. Yeah. I'm trying to get the hedges. <laughs> exactly. They'll tell you. They'll, they'll explain it to you in detail. And they will also tell you horror stories. Again, the fear thing. You know, they'll try to protect you. Um, but they'll also maybe tell you some nuggets, you know, that will definitely help you, guide you. And they might even loan you some money, you know. Because you know how they are, like when they see that you have some enthusiasm. I see this every day in my practice where people grow up in a terrible neighborhood and they don't want their parents' house now because they move somewhere else that's really cool. And they are like, ugh, no, I never, I don't want that house. And then their poor parents who worked really hard to, to, to buy that property and to get that property to secure that kind of wealth have to give it away to people who are not, who don't care about it, who don't, who are not building a legacy for their family or who are building a legacy for not our family, <laughs> if you know what I'm saying. So um, if you have a, if you have a family member that has a property and you think to yourself, oh, it's awful, it's in disrepair, it's not cool, it's not in a great neighborhood, like just buy it anyway. Because we have to fit in. We have to get in where we fit in. And especially in major urban areas, there is nothing but change, right? So that crappy neighborhood that you grew up in that you think like, oh, never. I'm so glad I got out of there. There is a young white person right now thinking like, ooh, that house is cool, Maybe I could get it, you know? Spitting bars. <laughs> we on our way. Well, thank you so much, Helena. You are uh, a shining bright star. And, man, we learned so much about your contributions to, I mean, to a lot of people's uh, even childhood culturally. And then even, you know, I mean, now she. A child. Childhood. Wow, yeah. She raising a whole generation out here, for real. Are you like, what's next? Is it like commercial buildings now? Are you already into that? Or like what's the what's like the next thing you, no, you're gonna conquer? Right Is now, it real estate? I'm really obsessed with financial instruments. So I'm like learning all about options and about Bitcoin and Ethereum and just oh, yeah. we gonna have to talk. different yeah. like financial instruments. Um but yes, real estate will always be my love because it has the word real in it, you know? Well, uh, thank everybody, man, for listening. Hopefully you learned something, man. I'm, I'm sure we point you in the right direction. You know who we are. Keep up with us at High Power Pod on, uh, on Instagram and highpowerpod.com. And we're going to see y'all next time. Yeah. <laughs>